Well, good morning. As Jeremy said, for those of you who, who don't know me, my name is Will. Uh, Emily and I and our family are part of the congregation here. Uh, we've got our four lovely boys you may or may not have run into. Owen, who likes to talk, Jacob, who likes to move, Wesley, who likes to smile, and Hudson, who likes to do whatever he pleases. Um, so, uh, We're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 3.16 uh, through 4, uh, verse 3. Uh, so if you want to start turning there or um, moving there digitally, uh, that's what we'll be reading in just a moment. But before we do that, um, there comes a point in the life of every child, usually from a pretty young age, where we were confronted with this very harsh reality of life. And as people tend to do, we have this, this pithy saying that we've attached to it. And I guarantee it's something that you've already heard. In fact, to prove this, I will start the saying and I will let you all finish it. Life isn't fair. There we go. Right? We've all heard that. Many of us heard that from our parents. Some of us uh, take great delight in passing that on to our own children, maybe greater delight than we should from time to time. But we all have to wrestle with that, right? And we, we cope with it in different ways. Some of us just grow cynical towards it. Some of us just kind of try to ignore it. Some of us learn to manipulate it or some combination of all three, right? But deep down, when we really think about it, right, though it, it can be funny, it bothers us, right? Life isn't fair. Or another way of saying that, life isn't just. And so we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, we've looked at Solomon, the wisest man not named Jesus who ever lived, and he's looked, or he's looked so far at things like wisdom, uh, work, pleasure, and he's concluded that all these things are vanity or Hevel, to use the Hebrew word, vapor, smoke, meaningless, things that don't have substance, we can't grasp them or understand them. And so it shouldn't shock us that Solomon uh, eventually turns his gaze to justice. And so we are going to pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity, hevel, meaningless. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
it's quite the cheery passage, right? It's one of those, you, you read it the first time, you think, wait, that's in the Bible? Like, <laughs> did God mean that? Well, the first thing that we notice here, and it stands out very clearly, is just the reality of evil under the sun, right? Solomon doesn't have to go looking very far to see evil. He just generally looks around and says, yeah, it's there, right? This is one of the, the parts of what Christianity teaches that you usually don't have to work very hard to convince other people of, right? I mean, you could hunt high and low, and it's going to be hard to find somebody above the age of maybe 12 months who will not admit that the world is not the way it should be, right? We can see this on a global scale, right? Think of wars throughout human history. Think of the war going on in Ukraine and other wars that maybe don't get as much press time, right? Think of things going on in our nation, right? If you, if you took a poll, how many people would say, yes, like we have achieved justice, right? It's always done. No. Maybe think of our own lives, right? We've all had times that we can think of where maybe we didn't win that game because somebody else cheated and they didn't get caught, right? Or maybe someone was awful to us and never, never seemed to pay any consequences, right? Or maybe we think of times when we've been that person mistreating our siblings or our colleagues or our friends or whoever, right? Evil is present under the sun, we also see that this is not the way things are supposed to be. Solomon could have said, well, I looked around and evil is just the way it is. But notice the language he uses. He says evil is there in place of justice. Evil is there in place of righteousness, right? Justice and righteousness are the way things are supposed to be. And evil is like the, the usurper, the supplanter. Uh, those two words, justice and righteousness, are often used together as kind of a shorthand to describe who God is and what he expects his people to be like. So some examples, um, Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. A very famous verse from the prophet Amos, uh, chapter 5, verse 24, uh, God tells his people, I want you to stop with just the outward hypocritical show of worship. I want you to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or from Psalm 72, uh, which was our call to worship, uh, a psalm that was likely written as kind of a dedication to Solomon, author of Ecclesiastes, when he became king. It starts, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, so that he may judge your people with righteousness and the poor with justice. So there should be righteousness and justice. There should be all the things that God reveals in his law about how we are to live and treat each other. There should be love of God and love of neighbor. But Solomon doesn't see this, right? And we don't see this all too often. There is evil under the sun. Well, Solomon looks, and we wonder, okay, so who's going to do something about this? Well, the next verse, um, Solomon says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And that actually sounds pretty hopeful, right? Maybe we read that and we think, oh, final judgment. God is going to make it all come out right. But sadly, that's probably not what Solomon is saying here. Um, in fact, the way that this is worded in um, the Hebrew text is a little bit odd, but it's worded in a way that emphasizes that the righteous and the wicked are kind of in the same boat, in the same position. 
And so he's not saying God is going to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. He's just saying sometimes the righteous get get judgment, sometimes the wicked get judgment, right? Uh, We see that in the next verse too, right? He equates the righteous and the wicked. He says God is testing people so that we can see that we are no better than animals, right? Animals die, people die. The righteous die, the wicked die, right? This is not a statement of hope. This is not a statement that God is going to make things come out. This is a statement of who knows, right? Maybe that person that zoomed past to get in front of everybody merging will be pulled over, or maybe they won't, right? Or maybe somebody who's innocent will suffer unjustly, or maybe they won't, right? Who knows? This is hevel. Humans and animals, according to this passage, have the same portion, the same lot, the same breath or spirit, and go to the same place, which is interesting. There's a lot of debate today or a lot of conversation about, you know, do humans and animals have the same origin, right? But Solomon doesn't even bother with that, right? He asks, do we have the same destination, which in some ways is a more powerful question. He says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Very famous line. He actually lifts that almost word for word from Genesis 3, from the curse that God pronounced to Adam and Eve when they sinned and when evil came into the world, right? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so for Solomon, his bottom line is, yeah, there's evil in the world, and there's no guarantee that anybody's going to do anything about it under the sun, right? You live righteously, you're going to die. You live wickedly, you're going to die. You're human, you're going to die, right? The mortality rate, last time I checked, is hovering steady at right about 100%. We see those who are good might live longer, might not. Those who are evil might get what's coming to them, might not, right? How many times have tyrants throughout human history seemed to never face any consequences for what they've done, right? Or how many times have people that chose to do what is right ended up with shorter, harder, difficult lives seemingly as a direct result, right? And who can say whether anybody's going to make this right afterwards, right? Who can say whether the spirit of man goes up to a different place than the spirit of the animals? Like, who has been there? Who could come and show somebody what it is like on the other side of the grave, even if there is another side of the grave, right? As an aside here, I'll remind us that we're still under the sun, right? There is more to to the message than just this. Well, what is Solomon's advice for living under the sun? Verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Okay, so translation, we don't know what comes after death. We don't even know that there is anything after death, right? So just do what you're going to do and rejoice. Like, squeeze as much enjoyment out of life as you can. If that's living righteously, that makes you feel good about yourself, then do that. If that's living wickedly, right, do that, right? Um, 
it reminds me of a kind of an infamous quote from the late uh, Anthony Kennedy, who was a Supreme Court justice. And he wrote in the early 90s in a Supreme Court case, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So you want to be free? You come up with your own meaning. It's kind of what Solomon is saying here. And maybe at first glance that sounds a little bit noble, but if you think about it, that's terrifying, right? Because my meaning might be do more good than bad, might be try to help people when I can, but somebody else's meaning might be I'm going to get ahead. And if I step on people on the way, well, that's too bad. My meaning is this, right? Maybe we think of somebody like uh, the villain Voldemort, right, from Harry Potter. He says there is no good and evil, there is only power, right, and those who have the will to seek it. Or maybe we think about uh, the Joker from the, uh, the Heath Ledger movie from years back. Right? He's just going around causing havoc, and he, there's this powerful scene where he's being interrogated by Batman, and he says, the only sensible way to live is without rules. I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Right? All this death and destruction, like, that's not wrong. I'm just the only one around here who realizes that I can do whatever I want if I get a kick out of it. It's a terrifying, terrifying reality. Uh, or the Apostle Paul says something very much like this in 1 Corinthians. He said, if the dead are not raised, if there is nothing after the grave, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just live it up. Squeeze every drop of enjoyment that you can. And uh, maybe closer to home, and on a, just to, to lighten the mood a little bit, one example of doing this uh, comes from my childhood. I figured this was appropriate since my parents are here. Uh, back in the day, uh, if you'd asked my, my three siblings and I, what would be your ideal restaurant to go eat at? We probably would have said Luby's, right? We want to go to Luby's. We want to go through the buffet. We want to get the jello and the mac and cheese uh, that they count as a vegetable, right? So we don't have to eat carrots or something like that. Um, and we always wanted, can we get apple juice or can we get apple pie? And usually what, when the answer was yes, we got one that we all got to split. So one day, we're at Luby's, and we have one combined glass of apple juice that's going to be divvied up to each person. Well, somehow, I'm the one who ended up with it first, and I decided, you know, I had this brilliant idea. If I spit in the apple juice, my, my sisters are not going to want to drink it. So I did. I, now, I had to be a little bit covert so that mom and dad didn't see it first, but my sisters didn't see either, so I had to tell them, hey, I spit in the apple juice. And so that, as you might imagine, led to uh, some protests and an outburst. And uh, by the end of that time, I felt very bad for what I, have done, I had done. And I, I was very strongly and appropriately chastened. But since nobody else wanted to drink the apple juice, I got to drink the whole cup of apple juice at the end. Right? And now, for the record, I didn't feel good about that. But from a certain point of view, I came out ahead. Right? I wanted the apple juice. I wanted a way for my sisters not to get the apple juice, so I spit in the apple juice and I got to drink the whole thing. Right? And that's kind of what Solomon is saying. Right? Just squeeze every bit of enjoyment. Drink the apple juice, right? You might as well. 
Well, that may be all well and good for somebody that gets the apple juice first, right, and has the opportunity to leave their mark on it. But that doesn't work out so well for the people that have to drink the apple juice later, does it? Right? That didn't work out so well for my sisters. Look at, ver- or at chapter 4, verse 1. Right? Solomon, he's the most powerful, wealthy person in that part of the world, maybe on the whole planet at the time. It's all well and good for him to say, well, I'm going to squeeze every bit of enjoyment out of life. He's got the time and the resources to do that. But many people don't. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." What do we say to the people that are on the other side, right? What do we say to the people that can't squeeze enjoyment out of life because they're facing a power imbalance? They're facing oppression of whatever kind. What about the people that don't have wealth, right? What about the people that don't have power? What about the people who are just struggling to survive, right? What do you say to the people that are facing difficult circumstances and it's because of somebody else's attempts to squeeze enjoyment out of life, right? What do we say when somebody's evil decision in one generation continues to affect the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, right? Who is going to make that right? What does Solomon have to say to them, right? Uh, This gets even more troubling when we consider Solomon's position. Solomon is the king, right? If he's looking around and he's seeing this injustice, whose job is it to push back against that? Who is the person most responsible on earth at that time to do justice and righteousness? It's him. And so, why isn't Solomon fixing this? Well, maybe Solomon has tried. Maybe he genuinely wants to make things better in his realm, but he just can't, right? Uh, This is a sobering reality. Sometimes we may want really badly to fix everything. We may want to try and to fight and to make things more fair. And we just can't do it, right? Because the problem is too big. Solomon himself couldn't fix this, right? Um, Sometimes sin has splash effects that are so big that it takes time to even begin to heal, right? And, and some problems are just too big, right? You could say that humanity has had thousands upon thousands of years to try to fix the problem of sin and injustice. And in, in some measures, all we've done is made the problem worse, right? There's another possibility, right? It may be that Solomon hasn't fixed this because he's part of the problem, If you read about Solomon's reign, there are a lot of things that he did that contributed to the oppression of other people. Uh, He had a bunch of big building projects. There was forced labor that led to things like even the temple of the Lord, right? At the end of his reign, when God chose somebody else to be the next king, Solomon tried to have him murdered, right? It may be that Solomon's wealth is in some part dependent upon him squeezing enjoyment out of life by stepping on the backs 
of other people. And so maybe he's not fixing it because it would cost him too much to fix it, right? Maybe sometimes the reason that we don't do more to combat things that aren't right in our own lives, in our own society, is because we're too comfortable with the way things are. Right? And maybe it's some of both. Which leads us to our third point, right? Human wisdom cannot save us. Solomon cannot save us, right? The wisest person who had lived up to that time, who had it all, who had wealth, who had power, who was God's chosen person to be the king of God's people, couldn't save us. This is Hevel, right? This is vapor. This is meaninglessness. There is evil. It's present. We know it's not supposed to be there, but we can't fix it. We can't even fix ourselves. Evil takes the place of righteousness. There is no guarantee that we will see justice done under the sun, right? So we might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Even the wisest of us can't fix this. And in fact, we're no better than animals. Why? Because in the background over all of this looms death, the great equalizer. Death is the specter that's looming over Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. And we go back to those words, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death is in some ways the specter that looms in Genesis 3. But death is not the only thing that is foreshadowed in Genesis 3. And though Solomon stops here, still looking at life under the sun, God's word does not stop here. Praise be to the Lord. If we were to go back to Genesis 3 and to read even the words of the curse, when Adam had sinned and evil came into the world, it's not all here are the consequences. There is also a glorious promise tucked in there in verse 15 of chapter 3, where even as he's about to pronounce judgment, God says, the offspring of the woman is coming. Someone will be born, and that person is going to crush the head of Satan, the enemy. That person is going to save his people. That person is going to fix it. Later, God would tell Abraham that it was going to be one of his descendants. Later, God would tell Solomon's father, David, it'll be your offspring that will reign forever. David likely wrote the words of Psalm 72, dedicated to Solomon. There may have been people that thought that maybe Solomon is the one. He wasn't, right? But there was a greater Solomon coming. One who would be born of a woman who would deliver his people. One who would choose to voluntarily enter into the injustice of our fallen world to endure it without ever returning evil for evil. The only innocent person who ever lived. The only person who didn't contribute to the problems that Solomon mentions, right? who still hung on a cross so he had done nothing wrong, not only to show that God is just, but to show that God will do better than that. God will also forgive those who are guilty who run to Jesus, right? Solomon asks, who knows? Like, who knows where man's spirit goes after death? Jesus does. Jesus went there on purpose, and he came back. Right? He said, because I live, you also will live. I'm going to prepare a place. Right? 
so that where I am, there you may also be. Jesus came from beyond the sun, right? And Jesus will reign far after the sun burns out. He is the king who is greater than Solomon, who cares enough about the injustice of the world to die to fix it, and who is powerful enough to defeat death, the great enemy, and to bring justice to all who have ever lived. And so I want to read those words from Psalm, uh, the end of Psalm 72 again, and, and close with that. Think about what this tells us about our king, and think about what this tells us about what kind of people we ought to be as subjects of this great king. So this is Psalm 72, uh, some selections starting with verse 11. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. So Jesus is the king of everywhere, wherever the sun touches and beyond. He's the king of the universe, right? There's not a square inch on this planet that he does not reign. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. Solomon may have looked out and seen there's no one to comfort the poor. Solomon may have failed to do that. Jesus doesn't. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. What a beautiful line, right? Precious is their blood. So precious, in fact, that Jesus shed his blood for people like you and people like me, right? And if that's the way that our King and Savior views fallen, messed up people, how ought we to view those around us, even those who may be perpetrating great injustice, right? It also informs the way we feel about ourselves when we realize that we have done wrong. Jesus still cares. Jesus still treats our blood as precious. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun, right? Yeah, we still talk about Solomon, um, but Jesus surpasses him in every way, right? May people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Everywhere from Rose Hill, Texas, to the place of the Bai people in China and everywhere in between, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And we look forward to a day when Jesus will reign. The sun will be no more. There will be no more under the sun. There will only be the reign of Christ, and there will be perfect justice. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you and we praise you uh, that you are a God of righteousness and justice and that you are working those things out in your world. We thank you, Lord, uh, that though there are so many times when we don't see it, uh, when our, our vision may be limited to what is under the sun, to what we can see, that there is always more to the story. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you for his life. We thank you that because he hung on that cross and died and came back, you are not only a God who is just, but you are a God who can credit righteousness to those who believe in him. We pray, Lord, um, that as people who have been redeemed, as people who do not deserve 
your mercy, but deserve your justice. Help us to be people who extend your mercy to those around us and also who work uh, to make the world look a little bit more like your kingdom in the places where you've called us to. We pray that we would model the reign of our great king, and it's in his name that we pray.